You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. This is such a special episode, 100 episodes of this podcast. I honestly thought we would never get to this stage. The Think Brick podcast started during COVID as an initiative for myself and our team to focus our abilities and our information through another platform. And I'm so proud of how well the podcast is done. And I really want to pay tribute to the Think Brick team who produce all of this in-house and who I could not do without. Over these 100 episodes, we've been able to interview architects all over Australia, as well as some special architects from other parts of the world. We've delighted in being able to see the contrast and comparison between those architects that have just graduated to those who have been in the industry for a very long time. I do hope you enjoy some of the highlights that we've been able to extract from these interviews from such a variety of our architects. In particular, what I loved when I asked architects what their childhood was like, I'm sort of looking there to see whether they knew they were going to be an architect from the get-go or not. And as you'll see from a couple of these architects, some of them thought they knew it straight away and others preferred to be rock stars. Well, I have a long sort of history with bricks. I mean, actually thinking about it driving in here, I think one of my earliest memories was carrying around bricks for my father as a kid, I think. And uh, I grew up in inner city Sydney in Balmain uh, in a a wonderful brick Victorian construction. It's been a building element that's been very familiar to me my whole life. And when you were carrying bricks, did you ever lay any of them or were you just...? Yeah, my memory was just being amazed that I actually could carry one brick you know I was, I was sort of that young that I could you know the weight of the brick was almost beyond me so I remember thinking oh my god I'm, how special am I I can carry dad's brick and, and help him out. It wasn't really a bolt of lightning um, it came about I think I had some skill as a child at drawing and painting and my parents encouraged that uh, and then I think at high school I was sort of proficient at maths and sciences and so it seemed like an obvious choice for my parents. My mother was pushing for fine art and my father had a commercial reality about it and (laughs) was pushing for architecture, so he won. And while you were at school, did any of your architectural talents become identified? I think probably just in creative play when I was a kid, that's when it started. I mean, you know, we were a generation which had... Lego, Lego to play with and I had friends who my best friend was the youngest of eight and so had built a pretty extraordinary Lego collection through her family and it was back when Lego was that beautiful universal no gendered colours good you know great block colours and the, the most superb gift to have as a kid for long afternoons just pottering around and I spent a lot of time making cubby houses when I was a kid another good friend of mine I directed her dad to put up a wall at a tiny cubby house and a drop-sided table we were laughing about that recently making 
willow tree houses around the river, um, spend a lot of time subfloor in my other friend's house lighting fires, which is probably lucky we didn't burn anything down. Combustibility testing. Burning straws and plastic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, drawing a lot of things on walls. So it, it was lucky and it was free. And I think, you know, you don't want to be a certain age where you're just like all oh, tech's awful. But it was pretty free, simple imagination times and mm. I and you know that kind of excitement I used to feel making things as a kid I often remember that as being what the definition of being really happy is. Two things that are worth remarking on in terms of my childhood that have shaped my, my, my career my mother's father Alan Schultz was a, a home builder a builder on Queensland's Sunshine Coast so in the 1980s when I was a child he was building houses in places like Nambour and Noosa and Maroochydore and I can remember many experiences of going on site and visiting the projects that my grandfather and my, my uncle who worked with him were building and being fascinated by construction sites and, and what happened on construction sites. And my other grandfather, my father's father, really encouraged me to write and really worked with me in my schoolwork at various times to help me become a better writer. And I do have a very strong re recollection of perhaps age eight or ten winning a writing competition at school and my grandfather being tremendously proud of this achievement of having written a story and entered it and won a voucher for five dollars at the local pharmacy in Gympie to oh, go and buy something. It's big money back those days. Yeah. <laughs> it was big money. So yeah. you know, not surprisingly thinking about that, though those two types of encouragement or those two types of interactions that somehow ending up with a career in architecture and publishing or mm. building and writing might seem somehow reasonably obvious, but really only occurred to me in the last couple of years that those two things and the encouragement of those two people. And so just thinking back to that period in your life and what drove you to architecture in that time? Did you know? To, to be something? honest, nothing. It was a kind of, I'll tell you a really cute story, and that is, when I left school, I really, all I wanted to do was be Bob Dylan. And my parents said, look, why don't you do medicine first and then you can be Bob Dylan. And so I went to re register at the university and actually the shortest queue was architecture. And that's how I ended up studying architecture. And wow. so I didn't really, I was never driven to be an architect. And in a way, it was just kind of luck that I ended up studying it. I don't think there's one architect that I have interviewed that hasn't travelled extensively. Indeed, travelling and architects just seem to go hand in hand. I've listened to some wild experiences <laughs> during some of these travels, but here's just a few highlights of architects and the impact that travelling has had on their design. So I, I graduated at the end of 1990, so there was no work to be had. Mm. <laughs> so it was the, that was the recession. I, yeah, the recession we had to have. Yes, yes. So I waited about a year and then went travelling after that. So spent a year sort of sorting a few things out. I designed a house for my parents in that time, which was built, and then went travelling and, and ended up working in the south of France mm -hmm. and stayed there for a year and a half, working in a kind of a great architect's office, all completely by accident. But it was sort of what I wanted to do. I wanted to work in France. I thought that would be kind of exciting and I really wanted to feel like the world was big and to eat different food, to speak a different language, to use a different currency and just feel like, you know, kind of explore adventure and just see where life takes you a bit. Being in sort of middle of 
Europe that you could just travel to all these places. Yes. So you go to Prague for the weekend and you go to Paris and London and it just that prolonged year of studying for six months and then backpacking. And at the end of my semester, before I went backpacking, I kind of got a part-time job in a secondhand clothing store, which kind of, you know, honed my German because you had to speak German because you were being paid. And yeah. yeah, I just think it's it's kind of such a rite of passage and such mm. a great personal experience for any young person but I think the exposure to architecture as a young architect is kind of priceless as well. You know I went to London gee I loved it I loved a lot of things that I saw instantly talking about first impression yeah. the scale drop for yes. me and, and become more intimate again mm. and uh, what I like really about the people people equally that more diverse American culture is diverse but very much they live in the bubble let's say Whereas the UK, well, London was more about Europeans. Yes. I felt the more sense of diversity, culturally speaking. Yeah. So I would meet the guy who came from France, speak, of course, completely different language and bring different food, different culture, Spanish, great Spanish friends. Again, completely different culture. And they, they look, look at the world so differently. I think it's really good to see other things because mm-hmm. in every different place, there's different building conventions and there's different materiality and there's even different different details, different regulations. They all end up with making the buildings look different. And I do find that really fascinating, mm. just the way the forces of a society make things look even subtly different. But there's nothing specific for me. I mean, I have to say my holidays or my travel is not about architecture mm. ever, really. Yeah. It's, it's about trying to sort of relax and rest, but also just to open my eyes to things which I don't come across. Mm. And I think that's an important thing too, is not to use architecture as an inspiration for architecture all the time. And it's obviously a very useful one, but when it feels like architecture can be more authentic and the and the inspiration is comes more easily when it actually reflects everything in the world, mm. not just other buildings. Mm. So I, I think travel is about keeping your eyes open to everything. It's always intrigued me when I interview architects to see where their view is on the part that they play in the future of our cities and buildings. And indeed, this is a response that has garnered so many different answers. And we're going to look here at a little bit of how architects see the future. Another thing that is really noticeable, when I enrolled in my first year, there was 104 students in first year and one female. Now I think the enrolments are generally more females than males, and that's a big change mm. and a good change. And I think the – and I'm not sure there's a connection between this. I'm not suggesting there is, but that's a big change. And I think the introduction of software is so demanding. The learning curve on software is so demanding. That takes up a lot of time. Mm. Most students tell me, young people who, who we employ, so it's not very well taught at the university. It's, it's brushed across, yes. so they're expected to learn out of hours. So that yeah. might be the thing that chews up a lot of time. But there's so many of them, they're constantly changing, so I think that's a really demanding. And so the emphasis on construction and construction knowledge and even some of the fundamentals of understanding plans and sections and how buildings are put together, there's so little emphasis of that in education now. But I think the door's open for a, another group to come in and take over that field of architects yes. on how you put buildings together. Yep. And I think it's a real challenge for mm. the future is that gap between you know, conceiving of a building, illustrating it, and then understanding the next step on how it comes together. 
what do you see as the role of young architects for the future? What are you seeing as their greatest challenges? Yeah, this is something that occupies my mind, of course, every Mm -hmm. day. And to give a pointy reasoning behind that, I recently was reminded by someone that the the first year students that arrived at the School of Architecture at UQ this week to begin their careers in architecture, they're in their late teens, a group of them are going to be the leaders of practice in 2050. They are going to be the directors and the principals and the industry leaders in 2050. Mm-hmm. So we have a very big responsibility in ensuring that we prepare them for those that career and for the changes that will occur in the built environment over that period. And because this is the Think Brick Australia podcast, here are some of our favourite answers from architects about why they like to design using brick. Look, brick is um, one of those extraordinary materials that I think we all take for granted. But if we think about it, it has um, incredible properties that are tied into the way that we think about sustainability as well. And so I think for all of us as architects, it's, it's one of those staple materials. I mean, we would, we would work in brick all the time if we could. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really love working in brick. It just so happens that we're in a timber-built city, as you said, mm-hmm. um, primarily, which is not to say that Brisbane doesn't have a brick tradition because it does. It tends to be a DIY one, which is actually really interesting. It's the directness of it as well that I like. I mean, I think uh, coming from a building background with my dad, I kind of appreciate that the tradesman input into every process. Like I, I love spending time on site. So there's something immediate about masonry. You're not then trying to cover it up or clad it or it's got this kind of raw, it's low maintenance. I mean, that's the other thing is that once it's up, it's up. You don't do anything to it. So you need incredibly good brick and block layers to, to use it. But it's a diverse product too, you know. You've got the thermal mass qualities. It's got a sculptural quality. It's got an architectural quality to it. It can do different things. You know, so it's it's an amazingly diverse material, even though when you're looking at it as an individual thing, you think, what can I do with that? We've done a lot of brick buildings now, but the thing I love is the flexibility as well. Like, you know, that it doesn't have to be a... It could be a new brick, it could be an old brick, it could be bagged brick, mm. painted brick, and that there's actually a lot that we, you know, have tried quite a few of the different things. And I mean, I showed you that little brick screen that we did yes. with the bricks on end. That was a bit tricky, but I like the flexibility. Different experts to come along and tell you to use another material. By the time we'd gone through all that, just laying regular bricks on lintels was the right thing to do for the building. So there was a bit of pressure at one point to change to precast and then consider brick snaps and all sorts of other things. Mm. But it ended up just being regular brick was kind of easy to build. There's a lot of people who know how to do it. And the texture and the, the realness of it, I think, is part of its charm. Well, I think it's one of those materials that most fully connects with being of the earth. You know, it hasn't been through a particularly large process of transformation. It's literally dig some clay, bake it, and it's almost in its original form. So there's a connection to sort of that, again, this thing of feeling, you know, being connected with the stuff that everything arises out of, which is the planet. So it feels grounded in our location. And I really like the spatial density of it. It's a really sort of dense material and used in a certain way. The Beaconsfield House in particular The brick makes it feel very quiet because it feels chamber-like and it feels, it has a kind of severity 
where a bit like the church has a kind of severity where everything becomes quiet. So I really like that. I like the fact that it takes a lot of human labor to make it. It's not pumped out of some sort of manufacturing process and is just sort of quickly screwed into place and that's it. It takes someone time and effort and there's a lot of craft. So yeah, there's, there's many reasons. I think that I am drawn to bricks maybe because I think they're like as a unit of building, it's pretty remarkable. It has a completely civic quality and it has a completely tactile quality at the same time. So it works in scale up and down. There is something so honest about the brick. It's been used forever. I think we love even with a lot of the bricks we use. Some can be textured, they can be rumbled and they can feel old and you might lay it in a very crisp way and all of a sudden you've got something that's new but it just feels a little bit older, a bit more relaxed. I think what the brick does, it also inherently gives texture to mm -hmm. a building. So I think you do get something there that you just don't get out of other materials. I'm always keen to hear the advice that established architects have or those with a lot of experience for young architects. So if you're a young architect, here's some advice, especially for you. I hate to sound 104, but I think you need to learn to draw by hand. And I think the digital world is magnificent, but I think you need to step away sometimes from that image sort of potpourri that is Pinterest and look at real books. You know, and it sounds so analogue and my children would snort at me, but I think if you look at real books, it's like listening to a whole record you understand the intent you understand the breadth you understand both the pictures and the drawings you get explanations that actually have depth and at the same time if you draw by hand you give yourself a tool that is transportable mm. so and I have said this before but I do think that when you go onto site and you have to solve a problem you do not have a computer with you to render or model or blah, blah, blah. You need to be able to quickly draw a detail or in three dimensions right there and then. And I've found over the years that, and things have also changed between builders and architects, but that slightly adversarial relationship where a builder's thinking, why do I have to listen to you? What can you do that I can't do? If you draw in three dimensions, and you can think quicker in drawings than they can, you can actually equalise that relationship a bit better. You know, respect the history of the art form by learning about it through history books, not just images, and learn to draw it. My advice would be to just try and work with the best people you can. And I think that's true. If you look at architects that you admire and you look at their work and, and you sort of do any research on them, you realise they worked for architects who were great architects and they work for architects. There's this sort of lineage of architecture and it's really important that you're only going to be as good as the person teaching you how mm. to do it. So I think that would be my advice That's to try and advice. work for good architects. I think it's advice for life really to be patient. I think to be an architect you need to be particularly a young architect, a graduate, you need to be really patient. And Aaron and I have been collaborating since 2003 and we met when Aaron was still a third-year student and for many years my best advice to Aaron was to be patient because he was this overachiever, <laughs> phenomenal scholar. 
he had the kind of scholarship that I never had. He, he was a real student, a real scholar at, at university. And always, you know, he had aspirations to be somewhere. And he was always comparing himself to those who were a lot older, a lot more advanced than what he was at that time. And I think that just always showed, revealed where his ambitions lay. But I was always saying to Aaron, just whatever you're doing right now, you're heading in the right direction and you will be wherever you want to be. Just mm. be patient. The funny thing is, before I did architecture, everyone who was in the profession or I said, oh, I want to be an architect, looks really exciting, said, you know, oh, don't do architecture. You know, the hours are bad and, you know, it's all uh, your designs never get put through. But I found that completely false. Okay. Which, you know, if I could talk to any year 11 or 12 student who was going to do architecture, I would tell them just ignore everyone else who's got this chip on their shoulder because I really enjoyed it. I've worked in practice. This is my first year out that I did a year out between my bachelor's and master's mm-hmm. working practice, and I've just enjoyed it like immensely. Can you give an example for some of our younger listeners? You've got an early 20-year-old person that's just started in their new job. Okay. Right? And what would your advice be to them around compounding? Because they've got a little bit of time on their side there. What would your advice be there? Well, the first rule is to get in the top 8%, be different. Mm-hmm. And you must use the richest man in Babylon theory. A part of all you earn is yours to keep. In other words, it's not the amount, it's it's the habit. You must keep something out of every pay, otherwise you can't build capital. See, to have compound interest working, you've got to have, got to have capital. And the only capital can come in the early stages from your earnings. Now, if you choose to squander that on nights out and cocktails and travel and tattoos and all sorts of things and flash cars. You don't have a capital base to grow. So listeners, I hope you enjoyed the highlights from our architectural interviews around travel, growing up, advice for young architects and where people see the future of architects and brick. If you haven't already, please don't forget that we have a library of evergreen content around some technical tips through our Tech Talks every second week. And thank you again for your support in helping us reach 100 episodes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.